each of us assumes everyone else knows what they're doing. They all assume that we know what we're doing. We don't. Nothing is going on and nobody knows what it is. Nobody is concealing anything except the fact that they do not understand anything anymore and wish they could just go home and embrace the void. If anyone was ever going to make it back from the void, I suppose it was going to be you. Oh, well, you know, one man's void is another man's piece of cake. What about the reality we left behind? What about the reality where Hitler cured cancer, Morty? The answer is don't think about it. People assume that time is a strict progression of cause to effect, but actually, from a non-linear, non-subjective viewpoint, it's more like a big ball of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 242 of Embrace the Void, where sometimes things actually do make sense. I am your host, Aaron, and this week we're talking about balancing the risks of groupthink and conspiracism. So let's slip the disc and gin up some fresh truth. Life ends in death, which we as a species are cursed with knowing, resulting in something. My guest this week is David Fuller, a journalist who made documentaries for Channel 4 and the BBC and co-founded the Rebel Wisdom content platform in 2018, starting with an exclusive interview with Jordan Peterson. Rebel Wisdom promotes a sense-making approach to truth and personal growth meant to counteract problems with mainstream approaches to those issues. David, would you like to say hi to the void? Hello, void. Hello, Aaron. Hello, thank you for joining us here. I've been really looking forward to this conversation after uh, quite a few interactions, both on your show and, and behind the scenes recently. Yeah, I think we've gone from a slightly more antagonistic uh, relationship on Twitter to something a little bit more. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm welcoming any, any antagonism you might want to bring, any yeah. challenge. Yeah, I think it helps to establish a little bit of uh, mutual respect first. So I think we've done that over the last few weeks. Yeah, and it's been a really fascinating experience because I feel like you know, we come from the same place on like so many things, content-wise, conceptually, philosophically, on so on several things. And then like, I feel very at odds sometimes with like the content that you're creating and some of the conversations that you're having. And it's just fascinating to me that we can we can be in that place. So I want to talk about all of that. And I, I know you, you got a lot uh, to get to. So let's just dive right in here. Can mm. you just start for folks who maybe this is the first time hearing the word sense making as a thing? Like, uh, what is sense making and why you're drawn to that approach? So the word sense making, I mean, there's a there's a whole history to it that I'm a little bit familiar with, but not completely regarding the work of Dave Snowden in particular. And I, th there's a lot of very interesting work that predates that as well. And some of that tension has come up as we've been using the word because we've kind of become aware of that it's got a history that's a lot longer than the way that we've been using the word. But Dave Snowden, for example, talks about 
complex systems and he's got a model that talks about how you model certain systems and his his perspective with complex systems is that you, they cannot be modeled they can only be interacted with and therefore the process of interacting with a complex system and thereby changing it and then and thereby changing the way that you're interacting with it is is by definition a dynamic process that often people try and try and treat a complex system like a complicated system which means that even though it's tough to map you can map all of the moving parts like a car would be a complicated mm. system or an airplane mm-hmm. whereas the human world is mostly complex so therefore we change it by interacting with it and he has called that process sense making and that sense making is therefore a dynamic process mm. when it comes to to thinking about different words that illustrate what we do on rebel wisdom and what we've ended up focusing on i don't think anything captures it in the same way that the word sense making does because mm-hmm. it's not just an and this is where it differentiates from people like um there are various now sense making communities and i would say a lot of them are still operating from a very sort of rationalist oriented place and in a way that doesn't incorporate the other dimensions of making sense of the world which is what we we try to bring in which is awareness of our own emotional states awareness mm-hmm. of what we might be carrying from our kind of historical baggage and so we bring in practices like mindfulness like shadow work that try and kind of illustrate all of those different ways of of how we make sense of the world and there's mm. a sort of sense that i have that if we go deep enough into the process of understanding how we make sense of the world we end up in the world of personal growth or the world of psychology as much as we end up in the world of sort of propositional knowledge and actually one of the big problems is trying to solve things from a purely propositional level when actually it's a much more it's a much more complex picture than that so we're mm-hmm. trying in a way and mm-hmm. I, I know uh, you've warned me that many of your listeners might have a a an antipathy to the word sense making which i I've, I've also spotted in various groups on twitter understandably because a lot of people using that word i think are using it in a very uh dry um kind of rational o- overly rational and you've talked about like civility porn and and some of the ways that the the, the broader sense making sphere can be sort of high decouplers to the point where they're actually kind of something like amoral or unethical mm-hmm. and and i so I, I share some of your concerns about that and i mm-hmm. i'm hoping to kind of reclaim the word sense making that incorporates all of those different dimensions that i mentioned yeah okay so let's let's set the, so the concerns aside for a second we'll definitely get to those um, yeah. because i think those to me are related to the like social uh, historic context in which your particular sense making is taking place. What you described there was, I think, broadly a sort of philosophical approach. Let me let me just run something by you. When I try to explain sense making to people so they understand both sort of the content as well as the form that you're describing there, the process, I sort of describe it as like think of the intellectual dark web or the heterodox, whatever kind of however whatever term we want to use for the sort of intellectual countercultural community that's out there online right now there is like these two 
polarities and one is the like hyper rationalist end that you're describing and then there's the sense makers who to me are like the mystics of the idw right so y'all are into psychedelics you're into you know really abstract symbolism kind of stuff kind of vibing you know your mm -hmm. way towards understanding um and does that, does that feel correct to you in terms of how you experience this stuff yeah i I don't know who you would be referring to because you mentioned the IDW, which if you're talking about that as a specific group of people, I would say that they de definitely did have that rationalist bias and there wasn't so much openness to, with, with the exception of Jordan Peterson, I would say he was probably the one person who was bringing a much more sort of symbolic um, or kind of religious perspective they did Whereas, different chunks, right? Like, so like Sam Harris has the meditation angle, right? And like yes. the Weinsteins have a nat the naturalness angle and like, yes. so there are different pieces that I think a lot of them were bringing, but I think you're right that like there's a, there, and a lot of folks, there's a kind of split. So like even in Peterson, mm. I think he has the like very masculine rationalist stuff, but then also the very emotive symbolic stuff. And they sometimes yeah. sit in an awkward tension, I feel like, in his behavior. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think the IDW, as it was, was pretty much created by Eric Weinstein. And Eric has a has a particular, he, he has a, a very kind of materialist, rationalist bias, although I think he's got the other dimensions as well. I think he was trying to create it around that I think he was trying to create it in a way that gave it credibility in the mainstream. Interestingly, as you mentioned, sense making, he was going to call his podcast sense making. Mm. Um, and then Sam Harris changed the name of his to making sense. And he felt that he couldn't, which is why he called it, <laughs> which is why he called it the portal. Um, <laughs> and, and I, so at the time that the whole IDW thing was coined and I was quite excited by that mainly as, as a journalist and a working journalist, all I'd seen is the way that the internet had acted as a kind of corrosive force on journalism and truth seeking mm. for the first time that when this sort of IDW nascent kind of group of like podcasters and academics was named to me, that was a hopeful sign of, Oh wow, actually maybe there could be a bottom up solution to the problem of truth mm -hmm. from the internet because all these people have been selected by their audiences um, by popularity rather than sort of top down process. But I think I've been on the record for quite a while. We actually published a piece called The IDW is Dead, I think, or The IDW Will Die, probably like a month or two after it was named, mm -hmm. because it was clear even from the beginning. And we and we coined the name The Intellectual Deep Web, which where we brought in some of the more um, out there figures that I felt should be should have been in, uh, integrated, um, including people like Stan Groff, um Richard Tarnas who is one of my kind of favorites uh mm -hmm. and some a lot, a lot of the kind of Esalen style thinkers like the Joseph Campbells and the Maslows who were kind of part of that whole personal growth human potential movement of the of the kind of 70s and 80s and those mm -hmm. were sort of a lot of the people that I was sort of looking towards because I because I felt like the, the IDW was needed to go deeper than that it still had far too much of a rationalist bias for mm -hmm. me personally yeah so let's let's put aside the idw folks for a second because i think there's there's a 
problem there, but I want to talk about the weird esoteric mysticism stuff because I think this sure. is where I feel like we're on a lot of the same pages when you talk about mindfulness, shadow work. I'm like right there with you, raised on all this mm. stuff. In fact, you recommended to me Eric Davies's, Davis's High Weirdness, which is an amazing book that I didn't, I should have known existed, but didn't, um, which basically catalogs my entire childhood as a like psychonaut who was inappropriately, you know, introduced to countercultural weirdness like Philip K. Dick at an early age and stuff. Um, mm. And so I loved how that brought all those things together and also how, you know, it really did help me understand a lot of where I think y'all are coming from as specifically, I think, sort of Gnostic-ish, Christian-ish, specific mystics, not all of the sense makers in your group, but I think there is a lean in that direction. Um, but it also highlighted some of my concerns about the conspiracism stuff that we'll get to. Um, but before we talk about that, I want to talk about the personal growth part of that that community, because to me, there's a lot of value of personal growth in those countercultural traditions, despite the risks. Can you talk a little bit about your personal journey and how you feel like you've grown and changed doing this work? Yeah. When you say this work, do you mean all sort of per, all kinds of personal growth? Yeah, all, all of the psychonautic sense making stuff, you know, whether that means you know, psychedelic yeah. journeys or retreats or, you know, yeah. talking to people. Yeah. Yeah. So I probably started with with that, with psychedelics at university, like many people, and immediately found, yeah, got, got the transmission and started really diving into a lot of the kind of 1960s um, counterculture stuff, uh, Leary. And I was also kind of early onto the internet, kind of reading, reading a lot of the reports on stuff like Erowid and connecting to connecting to that sort of initial American history, primarily the book called Storming Heaven by Jay Stevens that tells the history of that whole counterculture period of the, of the 60s. So I really felt like I connected to that kind of historical um I was also studying philosophy and religion at the time. And Christian existentialism at the time was the one that I really found a, a connection to. So mm -hmm. the sort of the, the, the exp exploration and then the, the, the study as well. And then I had a pretty difficult period after university where I was sort of struggling, maybe did too many psychedelics and mm -hmm. kind of... Mm -hmm coming up quite hard against a lot of the limitations in myself, um, which I think you get a few freebies with psychedelics and then the, the bill becomes due. And sure. so when that yeah. bill... Scanner Darkly is all about that, isn't it? Yeah. And so when when that started happening, I, I did my first personal growth retreat in about 2006 called the Hoffman Process. And that was, a, was an incredible opening process dealt with a lot of father stuff, mother stuff, and then your connection to your sort of higher self, what they call mm -hmm. the spiritual self. And after that, that just got me into doing group work. I did an awful lot of group work, some one-to-one -one therapy work, but a lot of group work over the last 16, 17 years or so. And I've also begun facilitating some group work as well, mm -hmm. trained as a counselor in 2017. Um, and I'm training as a coach now, and so I'd, I was hugely influenced by sort of personal growth culture while at the same time working as a journalist in, in the newsrooms of Channel 4 and the BBC and doing 
mostly foreign affairs stuff, mm-hmm. but also very intrigued. And what what are what are the kind of relationships between personal growth and also the the cultural conversation that that you're tracking as a journalist? And so that's kind of what where I've ended up. Is there like maybe one or two key sort of personal growth insights that you feel like you often come back to in that journey? You know that. Are, are meaningful for you in particular? Hmm. The one that I think is the most important is the integration of the whole somatic experiencing work and Peter Levine and the trauma work into the personal growth world in the... So, because the, the encounter groups... Sorry, I think can you, could, did... you quickly explain what you mean by somatic in that context? For people? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, there, there, so there is a school of therapeutic work called somatic experiencing that has a history with a a guy called peter levine who created it in the in the 90s and it was a it was a fundamental step change in understanding how we integrate and how we grow and how the ego structure it's it comes out of trauma but it but it understands how the ego structure functions and explains why some of the encounter group work for example from the 60s and 70s was mm-hmm. quite dangerous and quite damaging. And so mm-hmm. I think there's a I think people a lot of people have have well-founded suspicion of some of the group work and some of the kind of the personal growth history of the of the 70s and and I think have have a real reason for that mm-hmm. because if it's not integrating the way we understand how the personality works and how trauma works then I think it can be actually quite dangerous. And mm-hmm. there are people still teaching in a way that I think is quite dangerous. Uh, like the, the idea that you can either kind of obliterate the ego or go past the ego or in some ways kind of like that's that ontology, that model is so dangerous. And it right. And so the, and it has come from kind of the often come from a kind of non-dual tradition. Mm. Um, and similar to what you were saying earlier about the like process versus objectival kind of ways of approaching the world that like sense making is about this ongoing process. And I, I think mm. you're right also to tie it to the abuse stuff, because I think what you often see is people get themselves into a place where they think they've obliterated their ego and thereby transcended moral mm. limitations in a way. And then, you know, really go off the rails, it seems like. Yeah, that doesn't seem to work out too well. No, not um, so much. <laughs> I, I think I think you're asking me maybe for, for more personal um, examples in your question about personal growth. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, so you had an article recently that I found very sort of moving and meaningful about your personal journey with your mother and religion and things like that. And I just... Is there, you know, something about the way that you interact with the world where you feel like, you know, maybe you were much you felt more angry and have learned to manage that or or like something sort of fairly concrete that you feel like you've gotten out of this process for yourself yeah yeah the so when i mentioned doing the the first workshop in 20 2006 the hoffman process it was very much because i read a little article about the hoffman process and i was very aware i was having some problems at work with kind of authority and I could just feel that it was exactly the same way that I felt when I was at home with my parents. And I was like, this is this is definitely related in some way. So there was a feeling of like having to having to to deal with that dynamic to be able to kind of move forward professionally. And I'd also had a, a breakup, a really kind of difficult breakup, which also pushed me towards it. 
And the two things you, you mentioned the piece about my mother, which I'd be it'd be great if we could put into the show notes because I think mm-hmm. that is a a very good example. Uh, and and previously, I, I did a a piece about my relationship with my father that turned into a re- he he was diagnosed with cancer and died in in two thousand eleven, and I'd always fought with him growing up, and then. I'd done a lot of work on my relationship with him in various groups. And then in the process of him being diagnosed, I was able to show up for him in a way that I would not have been able to if I hadn't worked through that relationship mm-hmm. privately in myself. And I was then able, I, I shared with him what I found valuable, or things that I'd never told him about my gratitude for him and, and what he'd given me. And that was a really moving for him. And then it, then I thought, well, okay, I'm going to get in touch with everyone else who who he's known and get tributes from them. And that turned into an incredibly beautiful process in the last three months of his life. Mm. That I, I tell the story in a, in a video that I'd love to put in the, the show notes as well. But, and I know, I know that that would not have happened if I hadn't been able to have worked through some of my kind of resentment towards him. And um, yeah, my, my dislike of him, if I hadn't worked that through previously, that, that wouldn't mm-hmm. have happened. So I, I guess I'm, I guess I'm convinced of the value of a lot of these processes. If you if you do the work resolving some of these internal dynamics, I think they can cascade out into the world in some really amazing ways, which is where mm-hmm. I get the sort of passion for, for that kind of work from. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sympathetic to that, and I think I wanted to stick on it because I really don't want it to feel like I'm you know just bringing you here so that I can um, complain about the things that I think you're doing wrong. I really do think... There is value in this stuff. And I think, you know, doing so, for example, I know you're also interested in like helping men find meaning in the modern world in particular. Um, I, you know, my dad went to has had a men's group his entire life and we've done men's retreats and things. And I do think, you know, everyone in our world is dealing with a crisis of meaning. And for some people that has a gendered element to it and that I think needs to be addressed in valuable ways. I also think this stuff is important um, as well because um, if I can bring this forward, right, I think you've announced recently that you are um, ending Rebel Wisdom, that you're um, moving on to other projects. um, And in announcing that, you have echoed something that you've been saying a a, a couple of times recently now, which is that you feel that these communities kind of need to grow the fuck up a bit. Um, and I'm mm. quoting you directly there because I think it's important given your um, the concerns about civility porn, right? I think it's important when you choose to use the word fuck, uh, unlike when someone like I does it. Um, so what I want to ask here is, what do you see? You know, so I think it's important that you, you are, you know, that this is a personal growth system. And you're, the concern that you're raising is that it seems like there's a lack of growth happening to some extent. Um, so let me ask you first, what do you see as the kind of harmful immaturity that you feel like you've identified in this community? And then like, what concrete ways do you feel like people need to grow the fuck up? Yeah, so I feel like d- defining terms a little bit first, um, mm-hmm. in terms of this community, I think what I, what I'm, I think the, the phrase that I said was, I feel like the heterodox space needs to grow the fuck up. Mm-hmm. And I'm drawing that very loosely i found that so much of the like i i feel like the the heterodox wave that sort of started maybe in 2016 up until now and i 
started covering with Rebel Wisdom with the sort of Jordan Peterson phenomenon and then the IDW and in probably 2018 was a I see that as a necessary corrective to what I see as a kind of naive liberal mentality and a sort of over over um over simplistic social justice orientation mm-hmm. that that was I think a valid pushback but I think that whole you mentioned actually before that you're familiar with Ken Wilber's uh, mm-hmm. framing. So the mm-hmm. idea of the pre-trans fallacy. So I, I see it very much as a sort of pre-trans phenomenon. Yeah, do you want to explain that briefly for, for folks who have not read 10,000 page books about <laughs> the meaning of all yeah. the universe and everything? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and you can tell tell me if I express it well enough. But the idea, so a, any phenomenon or any perspective can be both pre and trans simultaneously. So pre can be a kind of... Um, let's an emotional reaction coming from a place of kind of um reaction or um what's the word how how would you how would you describe it or or it could be coming from a more considered place which is the trans justification so i let's let's talk about the insurgency of like i think you had a a pre manifestation which showed up in many ways as like Trump and Brexit, which was just a kind of emotional reaction of like, ugh, whatever's going on with the modern world, I don't like it. And I hate Hillary Clinton and everything she stands for. And just an emotional reaction, mm-hmm. which also contained like the basket of deplorables that, that Hillary talked about. But I think you also had a more considered rejection that was the trans that was Jordan Peterson at his best, the IDW at their mm-hmm. best, pointing out the flaws in in that kind of worldview. Jonathan Haidt, I think, as another example. But those two things existed at the same time. And over time, I think the the more nuanced responses to that, um, to the kind of liberal overreach, got pulled down more and more into the more reactionary, more contrarian space because of the mm-hmm. dynamics of audience capture, because of the dynamics of the platforms we're using. And I think it ended up, and I saw this particularly during COVID and, and then with the invasion of Ukraine, so many of the, the main figures became more conspiratorial. They became more reactionary. They became caricatures of themselves. Like Jordan Peterson now is, is, has become like the caricature that, that mm-hmm. everyone said he wasn't at the beginning. But I, but, and I don't think he was, but I think he is now. And so I kind of, yeah, I, I feel like something happened with that with that space, um, and but also like the oppositional dynamic is just so tiresome. It's like, and they they should grow the, the the sort of grow the fuck up was really directed at someone like Elon Musk, Joe Rogan, Eric Weinstein. It's like you've got all of the resources you could possibly want. Stop just criticizing the mainstream and start creating alternatives. If you're gonna mm-hmm. if you're gonna whinge about being attacked because you host Robert Malone and Peter McCullough on your on your show and get get slammed for it, then then host a, then use your clout to host a debate between the two. Like get on someone who's who's equipped to push back against them or interrogate their claims. It's not enough for Joe Rogan, given the given the amount of viewers he has and the and and the popularity he has, just to continue to do that when he could do something to actually start fixing the information ecology 
to host people from different perspectives in dialogue with each other or fund a news organization to interrogate the truth of those claims. Mm-hmm. I think part of the reason they don't is they realize that those claims don't have much truth behind them. And but but I think it's I think it's enough. The, 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 the heterodox wave of 2016 onwards is now mature enough that it should be it should be starting to produce value and i don't really see that it is it's still stuck in this like oppositional frame to the mainstream and that's just boring right and so so yeah i feel like right that's that's why that's why rebel wisdom is wrapping up is that whole rebel energy while i felt like it was valid at the time i think now we're we're in a space that needs synthesis not rebellion interesting yeah so a lot of a lot of threads to pick up on there um sure you know, uh, my, yeah, I, I think we can understand what you're describing there as sort of the thinking fast and slow distinction that people use a lot these days about like your reactive mental processes versus your deliberative mental processes. And we need both. And, you know, you can slide too far in one direction or the other. I think that's been sort of what we've been saying here about the like mystic versus rationalist, pre-reflective versus post-reflective uh, polarities in that kind of way. But I, I want to focus on this idea of um, you know, this audience capture, you know, I, I want to set aside, you know, arguing the particulars of who was terrible when there are meaningful debates to be had there. But like, for the moment, let's just say, let's just accept your, your sort of description here for a second. Um, do you feel like this description applies to not just Rebel Wisdom as a platform, but do you feel like you personally have also experienced this audience capture problem? And is, is like ending Rebel Wisdom part of your way of getting away from the audience capture as well? It's a good question. I have certainly felt the weight of, it's very, very hard to calibrate and hard to navigate because who is your audience? Like is your audience the comments thread on YouTube? Because if it's the comments thread on YouTube, it's a certain group of people. And I, I found it incredibly hard to navigate. And for sure, there's been, I know that, I, I, I genuinely don't feel that there's anything that I've put out that I wouldn't stand behind. I don't think that I've made, I've, I've tried not to make any ethical compromises and I've called out or I've, challenge various people when I felt they needed to be challenged like with the Dave Rubin interview a few years ago which which mm-hmm. had consequences and ended some relationships uh Brett Weinstein when he went very conspiratorial I wanted to have a dialogue with him on the channel he flat out refused and still hasn't talked to anyone who disagrees with him so I've there's been various sort of and, and Jordan Hall as well who was a friend who interviewed basically a, a fascist on his his channel i also had a conversation with him about it and put out a piece um criticizing that so i feel like i have taken unpopular stances mm-hmm. but at the same time there are definitely ways that i feel that i have probably not had certain conversations or not had certain people on because i knew how the audience might react or and it happened at a very subtle level and i'm i'm I'm, I'm not immune to it. And I think you'd be stupid to say that you are immune. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. my, my friend, Peter Lindbergh, who runs the Stoa, deliberately turned off the comments on his his videos. And there's been times where I've wondered whether it would have been a good idea for me to have done that a while ago. Because YouTube leans so kind of 
it leans contrarian, leans conspiratorial. Mm-hmm. So there's certain topics that I know are going to get the the kind of wingbats coming out, mm-hmm. and and I have steered away from those maybe at times, or just try to be quite careful about the way I express myself on them. Um, but yeah, it happens at a, at a subtle level, and I do. There is partly a sense of, um, yeah, kind of wiping the slate clean in some way and wanting to start again. But but I'm also aware that that the comments thread is not the Rebel Wisdom audience, and I hear every day from people who, yeah, I, and I, in a way, I think I'm only going to find out who the Rebel Wisdom audience really is during the process of the wrap up of the of the project. Mm. Um, yeah, so let's talk about some of these ethical concerns some. Um, I would say sort of I think I have like three main concerns with sense making as it is actually played out in practice. You've already mentioned mm-hmm. one of them, which is this kind of civility porn problem. And I think that one kind of sets the stage for the other two, which I see as kind of getting stuck too much at the theoretical symbolic level. And also the other one that you've mentioned there, which is a problem of conspiracism. Um, But let's start with the civility porn one, since that's, I think, uh, a way to ease into this. And it seems like we kind of generally agree here. You know, how is your thinking about civility porn? Um, and, And for folks who are not clear, this is the concept where you know, you have a really, really civil conversation about something really horrifying like Holocaust denial, not, not in y'all's case, but like just to give a really extreme example. And the the pleasurable pornographic part is that everybody gets to feel like very superior because they had this particular important conversation and it didn't get heated and nobody shouted at each other or anything like that, even if there's like no actual risk or cost to anybody involved in that performance, just to make clear the porn side of it. So you know, how is your thinking about civility and civility porn and dialogue sort of evolved as you've been wrestling with these problems? I think there's no, there's no easy, straightforward position on it because also quite ironically, a lot of the people who pride themselves on these sort of civil conversations are also obsessed with tone policing. Mm-hmm. And yet there's sort of a bit of a there's there's a bit of a kind of paradox there. And I think you're right to identify like in, in a way. Emotionality. Is unavoidable or around certain topics. And there is a there is a way that particularly in the sort of IDWS spaces, there was a peculiar form of no platforming that took the place of bad faith. Like mm-hmm. they would have this complete kind of rejection of anything that was ad hominem. And yet would throw around the bad faith accusation all the time. Like the, the Weinsteins in particular are very, very prone to doing this, where there's always a reason why they can't have a conversation with someone because that person's bad faith. Mm-hmm. What is bad faith if it's not an ad hominem? I mean, that's there's a paradox there. And also it's kind of turned into a way of policing the conversation in the same way that the no platforming happens on, on the other side of the political aisle. Mm-hmm. Um so there's that side of it as well. And that, that is related to the whole civility porn is that, well, if someone's kind of spoken in a heated way or they've in some ways used a, do anything I can conceive or conceptualize or frame as a derogatory term about me in the, in the past, then I won't involve it. I won't engage in that conversation with them. Mm-hmm. I mean, Dave, Rub- Dave Rubin is a classic example. Is, is probably the very worst at that. 
And I think it's worth it's, it's worth pointing out. I think I watched all of the ones that were like, "Here's where you had an argument with someone." I was told, and they're mm. very, very civil. Like the one sure. that you know, the 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 Ruben one, I feel like is very gentle, and even worse so the James Lindsay one, which was the one everyone told me about. Like you had some big falling out with James Lindsay, and like. Here's my here's my problem a little bit here. I watched that episode and I would say I was more critical of the fact that y'all kind of I, I would say you softballed them through the content side and the only mm. pushback you gave to Lindsay was a kind of civility porn pushback itself, a tone policing itself, where you said, Do you really have to be such a dick on Twitter all the time? Like you weren't criticizing yeah. him for the like anti-woke conspiracism, which I think was already there at that point. Yeah, but it was yeah, yeah but it was because he was pu just publishing a book called How to Have Difficult Conversations. Right, right. <laughs> so you were specifically targeting about the difficult conversations thing. Get, oh, that's absolutely true. I just think it's interesting to note that um you know, you didn't even put, you know, challenge him on the content. You were challenging him on mm. behavioral form stuff and that was enough to get you know blacklisted completely yeah. yeah yeah and that's and it's true yeah i wouldn't say that either of them were particularly i mean the, the strongest argument i think i've had was with the trigonometry guys mm -hmm. um and that was quite a big back and forth about some of their anti-vaccine content and to to be to give them their credit they're still yeah we're, we're, we're still on good relations like they actually do walk the walk partly because I think they come from a UK media culture that seems a little bit more rough and tumble. Mm -hmm. Whereas the Amer I, thing that I've been absolutely shocked by is just how thin skinned Americans are. And particularly those kind of like IDW esque figures, as you say, the, the interview with, with Ruben was not, it was, it was as challenging as I felt comfortable doing at the time. And mm -hmm. I did, I did push him on a few things, mm -hmm. but, but I thought it was quite a kind of, it certainly was not. It certainly was not kind of bare knuckle fighting or over the top. And yet, Ruben was very upset. Asked for me to cut out certain bits in the green room afterwards, and then asked me not to put it out. Which, mm -hmm. to which I said, Dave, you're the you're the free speech guy. What are you? I mean, are you? Are you I know, and I wasn't sort of. I didn't fall off the the media truck yesterday. Actually, he actually claimed that he hadn't signed a release form. And I just said, that's not going to fly. Um, yeah, and then with the, so with the James Lindsay thing, that was even more. I, I, yeah, I didn't feel like I challenged him all of that much. And the falling out with James was not. I think there's some misunderstanding as well. I saw some of those interactions on Twitter. The falling out with James was not so much what happened during the call. It was afterwards when he sent these really long emails explaining why he was never going to speak to me again. And I actually I actually kind of apologized to him in that aftermath and said, look, I, I realize you felt a little bit bounced into having a conversation with um, the Arc Digital guy, Nicholas Grossman, who I'd interviewed. Mm -hmm. And and I, I did feel like, well, maybe that was a little bit over the top where I kind of was like challenging him in real time to have a debate with someone. So I said, look, if you felt pushed into that, I'm, I apologize. But I thought it was definitely a valid question to ask you about your Twitter behavior, given You've just written a book about having difficult conversations mm -hmm. and then it was only in the aftermath on on it was the aftermath on email where he was saying well twitter isn't who i really am and then he confirmed in lengthy detail on email that it was exactly how he really is for sure yeah so, 100%. <laughs> so yeah th those are a couple of examples but 
But I'd mm-hmm. say almost all of those figures, those kind of IDW-esque figures have shown as, as, as our um, mutual friends on the code and the gurus will, will illustrate there are certain personality characteristics that they seem to have in common. Yeah, I think that's true. I also think there's some content things that are in common here. And this is where I think I'm, I'm, I was worried about, I'm worried about rebel wisdoms. Um, well, let me say, I'm worried about your sort of mindset with regard to some of these things, because I think my feeling is you see the problem, but generally sort of more in hindsight than in the present. So, I mean, I think the Christian Gnostic psychonaut stuff makes makes for a kind of vulnerability towards galaxy brain style conspiracism that ties into those different mindsets, I think, in kind of ways. And so I, th- I think both I would say I, I'm concerned that I would, you know, you have a larger than normal list of conspiratorial thinkers who have gone in this direction or are going in this direction. And that in the present, I still think you are platforming Folks like Jonathan um, Pagiao, I'm not sure how you pronounce his last name, but like, you know, we've argued about him quite a bit. I think that he's, you know, a pretty dangerous conspiratorial anti-vaxxer who has conversations with James Lindsay where like the only uh, daylight between them is that Lindsay isn't fully convinced on the importance of Christianity at the center of our culture and that like mostly Lindsay gets pulled in their direction. So I, it's hard for me to understand how you can see clearly the problem with folks like Lindsay or Weinstein, but still want to, you know, have these conversations with folks like Pagiao. Mm. How do you how do you reconcile that in terms of do you, do you feel like you're you're actually managing this kind of growth that you're looking for? Do you feel like um, there's a real distinction between them that can be justified there? Yeah, I think there's a few things going on. I mean, if you look at like I would still stand behind most of the content that I put out with Brett and with Heather at the time. I was surprised by, and I'm still surprised by the direction that he went in and particularly surprised that he would not engage in conversation around it, which was a very, so there's another potential problem here that I think maybe you've pointed to in the past of like, the difficult relationship between like personal relationships and and if if you're then also kind of inquiring into truth and you're um the like journalistic or the the truth seeking or the sense making gets kind of intertwined with the personal relationships and that's a difficult dynamic to navigate and i think it's one that none of us know the answer to like the the whole situation with brett was incredibly difficult because those personal relationships were mixed together with a feeling of like real concern about what he was doing. And I, and you even heard something like that when Sam Harris was also calling out what Brett and Heather were up to and sort of this sense of like wrestling. We, we don't know how to navigate, how to navigate this kind of weird relationship that we're in, in the alternative media space where we've got these into these relationships of Mm -hmm. truth and also relationships of, of kind of, interpersonal like for example dave rubin has still never called out sorry sam harris has still never to my knowledge criticized dave rubin and even though his audience has been baying for him to do that for an awfully long time um and i think there's also some truth in the accusation that i took more of a kind of 
rose tinted view of some of these figures and and didn't sort of see or wrestle with some of the more com, com, some of the complexities i think that's definitely been a, a habit in the past of seeing the best and it's something I've, I've realized in talking to chris kavanagh a little bit is that i think he sees the worst in people and i i, I try to see the best in people um and he's often he's often right um uh-huh. and, and there's some truth to that and i for example with I know you want to talk about Jonathan to some degree, but with Jordan Peterson, for example, I'm in the process of putting together a piece about sort of what happened to Jordan Peterson that has been many years in the making because I felt increasingly uncomfortable with where he's ended up and how he's been. But I've also felt conflicted because of his health problems and not sort of crit- and wanting to wanting to make whatever critici- criticisms I have of him in an interview that's how i've tended to try and do it over the over the years is to have those conversations and that hasn't gone particularly well like with dave rubin or with james Lindsay, even minor criticisms led to them completely shutting off communication um and that's happened quite a lot but anyway so so i i felt like the increasing concern with someone like jordan peterson i wanted to address in in dialogue with him and I'm going to start sort of putting that out, I think, because it looks like that interview is not going to happen now. Um, mm-hmm. as far as I can tell with Jonathan Pajot, I, I see your concerns with him, but I think I don't agree. Like, I don't feel the need with Brett. I felt the absolute need to, to have that conversation with him about his vaccine content. I thought it would be, almost unethical for me to ignore it given the overlap between our audiences given the amount of times that i featured him on the channel um given the fact that i actually featured him before the dark horse even existed because of our existing relationship and a feeling that oh i can have this conversation with brett and he'll be willing to engage in this conversation which i genuinely thought up until the point where he proved that he wasn't willing to do that which i still find pretty Mm -hmm. shocking um that was that was how I felt to navigate that compared to to that situation with Brett, where I do feel like a moral obligation to. And I think anyone who interviews Brett about anything has a moral obligation to ask him about the anti-vax stuff and the ivermectin stuff. Like, I don't think it's OK for for people to platform him and Heather and to agree to requests from their publisher not to address, not to bring up COVID when they're promoting their book, which is something we saw happen at the time. Whereas with Jonathan, I don't see that as the fundamental thrust of his of his content. I see I, I identify I think he's got an awful lot of value to to bring when it comes to to symbolism. Yes, he had an interview with with James Lindsay. I wouldn't have an interview with James Lindsay. He probably leans more conspiratorial than I feel personally comfortable with, but I don't feel as a curator that I have a I don't feel the same obligation to bring that up in in if I'm having a conversation with him about something else. Um, but I also feel like he's willing to have that conversation as well. I think there is a that there, there is potentially a conversation in the works where he will. I, I believe he will address those questions. And if and if he uh-huh. and if he refuses to in the way that Brett has refused to, then I will see him in a different light. Uh-huh. I would um, like. I I feel I'm I'm more than happy to work to help facilitate the conversation of people who do have criticisms and i would hope that 
the inability to create to receive criticism has been the I think the the main failure condition of most of the pit figures that we've kind of referred to mm-hmm. and and that I think hopefully whatever comes next I think that there's a healthier conversation with people from from genuinely different perspectives that never happened with those figures they they kind of coalesced around a a broad resistance to kind of the excesses of woke culture and never pushed on from there. Okay. So let me try to synthesize where yeah. I think I still have a concern. I might be a little bit I'm... rambling. Sorry about that. No, no, no. It's okay. I think there's a lot of valuable points in there. I'm a little skeptical on the optimism, pessimism distinction because I don't, I don't think that's necessarily what's going on here. I feel like it's more, personal blind spots and philosophical blind spots than just a broad, you know, thinking the worst or best of anyone in particular. Also, um, you know, I, I really do struggle to see any genuine distinction between Peterson, Jonathan and James Lindsay. Uh, you know, you say that you, you think Jonathan, you know, has a lot of symbolic value. Maybe this is beyond the scope of our time here. I would argue that, like, you know, you and I think agree that, like, some people are better symbol analyzers, the symbol, symbolic analyzers than others. I don't actually think he's particularly strong on that front. So I don't think if he really was exceptionally good at it, then I think you could have an interesting conversation about, you know, whether it's worth talking to him. I also, though, at the same time, would argue you know, I'm not sure it's it's worth having a conversation with someone who I think is promoting dangerous anti-vax conspiracism on one platform, even if they're really, really, really good at symbolic analysis. I'm just not sure that symbolic analysis ever pays off enough to justify making them seem sort of reasonable. Now, here, here's my question to sort of give this a, a solid framing. You know, in your talk with Jordan Hall, who you mentioned earlier, where you were challenging him about platforming a um, white supremacist, uh, anti-Semite character, um, you know, you said that you feel like he didn't give enough context for his audience to understand that person's position. I don't think I've ever seen you give any context in terms of Jonathan's position on vaccinations or anti-government conspiracism. I think you could argue, I want to have him on, but I need to address these issues. But I'm not sure I've even seen you openly address them anywhere. Do you feel like you have done that sufficiently? No. And I don't know if I fully expressed it before. The reason for that is that I don't feel, and you may disagree, you you may have a, a different perspective on Jonathan's content. But I don't feel like anti-vaccine rhetoric or outright conspiracism is a fundamental orientation of his content in a way that it became with Brett's. Brett pretty much pivoted his entire channel towards that that content. And and Jordan was having a conversation with a, a self-declared fascist like that's like that that was fundamentally who this guy Jordan um Brandon Hayes was proprietarianism was the was the name of the kind of order. and I don't really see that with with Jonathan I don't feel and if I if I watched Jonathan's content and I got the sense that that was his main orientation then I think I would feel I would feel differently but I don't I don't feel that with Jonathan um and and mm-hmm. may, maybe maybe you're right and I'm wrong in terms of that that is something fundamental to his appeal that needs to be addressed. But I, I I've seen some of his stuff about Alex Jones and I've seen I haven't seen 
him talking much about kind of vaccines, except that clip that was flagged up about um, something to do with a Christian approach to. And he was mainly talking about the mandatory nature of the vaccines rather than the vaccines themselves. Um, so it hasn't it hasn't. So he also my... discusses the vaccine itself as, yeah. as part of the. Concern. I mean, I, I mean, I haven't just from my own personal mm-hmm. compass, I haven't seen enough of that. Whereas someone like James Lindsay, you would have to, I, I don't, I don't think you can have a conversation with James Lindsay without bringing up him attacking the Auschwitz Memorial or him right. kind of just being absolutely his own, well, his own worst enemy and the worst enemy of just about everyone else on Twitter. Like that's, that's a defining characteristic. Mm-hmm. Um, and also I think Jonathan is a much more likable person than, than, than many of those other figures. Which, which which maybe which makes him worse, happen. right? More dangerous, problematic, maybe. potentially, right? Maybe um, if, if if you can persuade me that he's that his message is that dangerous, but I, I well, I, yeah, I, I like Jonathan. I think he does a lot of stuff that's of real value. So let me say, Jonathan, to me, for example, has not been clear on what he actually believes is literally versus metaphorically true. And this is another big problem I think I find with the sense-making stuff is, and this comes out of the high weirdness world where we're trying to break down simplistic notions of real versus not real. I think what you end up with is individuals who get too wrapped up in their symbolic analysis and mistake it for reality. You see it with Alex Jones all the time. He talks about, you know, he sees everything as a movie. He gets caught up in those kind of analyses. I don't think, I don't have any evidence that Jonathan is different from him fundamentally on that front. Like, I think it's not clear to me that Jonathan can tell the difference between a symbolic analysis of um, the health, the efficacy of vaccines and a, and a like medical analysis. Um, and, and the fact that he has said things like, he thinks that Alex Jones is, is is like right about a lot of stuff or on to a lot of things like that's, the, you know, when Rogan says that that's a big red flag. It either means that like you don't know enough about his content or you do. And either way, it's not a good thing uh, to be saying, it seems to me. So I guess what I will say is I, I don't think he's talked a lot about vaccines. I do think the anti-governmental Christian regressivism is dead center in his worldview. And I will be curious. I think we can say, you know, you and I, you know, we're going to have this disagreement and going forward, we'll see what happens. Is he going to, you know, go further in that direction or is he going to, you know, stick to, you know, symbolic analysis that doesn't lead to uh, radical anti-governmental, further radical anti-governmental kinds of um, stuff. And then let me just, I'll say finally about the, you know, you say there's going to be this conversation, right? I would love Mm. to see him have a conversation with someone who presses him about his views on, you know, Christianity, governments, and, you know, social issues a little bit. Um, I'm skeptical that it's going to happen. And I I think you're right that if it doesn't happen, that, that should again be indicative that there's something, there may be a blind spot here about, folks like him who are very nice, who say very interesting things about symbolism as far as, you know, from your perspective, but who have a big, you know, uh, um, conspiratorial element to them that doesn't seem as big to you in the present, I guess. Yeah. And let's see. I mean, there's there's something on the other side. We actually, in in the conversation that I recorded with Jonathan and John Viveki, we actually talked about the the critique sphere and the nature of criticism, mm-hmm. uh, sort of positive criticism and, and helpful criticism that I think might be useful uh, to to see. 
because there is, as you know, or maybe you don't know, I've been talking a little bit with Peter Lindbergh, who put together the Mimetic Tribes white paper in 2018. Mm-hmm. And sort of we've been sort of naming the critique sphere that that you're you're part of, uh, right. if you don't mind. Uh, alongside a founding like, member, so, I would like to think. Yeah, yeah founding member. Uh-huh. Alongside things like the Decoding the Gurus podcast and maybe um, on spirituality. Yeah, sure. and so, and I think this is a kind of a new a new tribe that arose partly in reaction to a lot of the over, um, a lot of the blind spots of like the public intellectuals, including the IDW. And I think is a really necessary thing. Mm-hmm. But the, the flip side of that, that I would say is, that some of some of you can come with what feels from the outside like there's a level of um, judgmentalism of snideness can be something that not necessarily often can come across on Twitter and sometimes I think it's it's maybe mm-hmm. not the case but a lot of the people attracted to that as well I think there's an element of there is something of the way that that some of the people around that sphere show up that I think also militates against conversations with people like Jonathan. Like Jonathan, in my experience, has been resistant to speaking to um, someone in particular because of the way that he sees them showing up on Twitter. And I think he's got a right. I think he's... And then when he's actually listened to this person speaking uh, on on mm-hmm. not on Twitter, has said, oh, actually, maybe I've got this person wrong. So I do think there are... There are character... Mm-hmm characterological things that I think also get in the way of these conversations. And then you get into this kind of like a good example was before this kind of critique sphere was born, you know, the, the big kind of face off between the majority report and Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. a lot of the, so Sam Harris and Eric Weinstein talked at length about why they wouldn't talk to Sam Cedar um, because of the way that, well, that, Oh, they talked to some part of Sam Cedar, the Sam Cedar who's kind of, but they wouldn't talk to the the Sam Cedar who was playing to the gallery and basically wanting to kind of enter the ring with a with a knuckle duster and wouldn't play fair. And there is there are these dynamics, particularly on YouTube, where people start playing to the gallery, and that becomes a, mm-hmm. a reason for these conversations. There are, I mean, as we know, like Sam Harris is kind of ambivalent about the nature or the the value of these conversations happening at all. So I think there is something, if I, if I can just seed something here, right. I think there's something, I think there's elementary work that needs to be done to, to create either protocols or safety or relationships of trust where we can have these conversations in a way that moves it forward. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. And that they don't fall apart. And I think mm-hmm. something like that needs to be worked on as mm-hmm. a matter of urgency, probably. I think I think this is a fair criticism, and I think I want to avoid letting it slip into the again civility porn. Um, you know, you have to talk really nice on Twitter, or we won't talk to you. Thing. What what I think of here that is a concern to me is the kind of epistemic poverty tourism dunking mm-hmm. thing, like the people that you're talking about who I don't want to attract, or the people who want to show up just to point and laugh at like people mm-hmm. who seem like. You know, and, and this is why I really like the UK skeptics folks as well. They're really into reason with compassion. Um, you know, so I, I do think there's absolutely an important concern there that, you know, taking the piss is fine. You know, making some jokes is fine. But like 
you know, it needs to it needs to have more value to it than just we're going to entertain ourselves by making fun of somebody for an hour. So I definitely agree with you about that. Um, now I realize we're running short on time here. Um, I did want to ask you, I have a lot of problems with thinking about personal and moral responsibility these days because of my own weird predilections about luck. You don't share those problems so you can maybe answer this question better than I've struggled to. You know, I, I do worry that you have had, you know, several years of doing this content, becoming successful in part by, as I've, as I've said, continuing to platform people who I have serious moral concerns with about presenting them as reasonable sense makers. Um, how do you think about your own sort of responsibility going forward? You know, because I think some people could be concerned that like quitting now is just walking away from those problems that you contributed to. How do you think about your future work maybe involving wrestling with some of these problems that we've talked about in a, a productive kind of way? Well, I won't be walking away from engaging in these questions and making films about these topics. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I want to, one of the reasons for um, closing the Rebel Wisdom Project is I want to bring them to a bigger audience. I want to mm -hmm. kind of make a bit of a journey back to legacy media and to try and make films about a lot of these topics for why not for BBC and Netflix and, and whoever like I, I feel that's where I want to go next so I won't be abandoning those and also there's a there's a fair process between now and November when we're going to have our final wrap-up event in London and I want to tell the story of the wrap-up of Rebel Wisdom and why I feel that this heterodox wave has collapsed in many ways or has become a parody of itself and i won't be holding back on on that mm -hmm. so i want to sort of tell the story of why what i think it got wrong and what i think sorry what i think it got right what i think it got wrong and i want to do that so so that that will be the process of the next four or five months is to try and is to try and tell that story and will some of that so, be in the first person like what did i get wrong yeah mm -hmm. yeah i'll be reflecting i'll be reflecting on that as well as part of it for sure okay and, um, and oh, also to that. yeah yeah i will um I'll, I'll i'll let you know when um when when it's all coming out and, and maybe um i'll be happy to come back i know it's a bit of a shorter episode than maybe you're always used to so be happy to come back and talk more yeah, maybe we can we can come back and see how things have gone after you've wrapped stuff up and had a little vacation or something. Um, so uh, one last question, and then we'll get to the enlightening round. I always try to leave with some resources for folks who, you know, might want to dive deeper into our conversation, into this world. What are some resources that you feel like have really in particular helped you in your sense-making journey beyond things like high weirdness that like, we've already discussed? I think the the piece that Ken Wilber wrote in the aftermath of the Trump election, Trump and a Post-Truth World, which is a kind of 80 page ebook where he kind of applied his kind of um, he, he didn't originate it, but but his version of spiral dynamics value systems to the culture war is absolutely crucial mm. uh, and also illustrates for me why 
the kind of consolation around the kind of the reaction to what Wilbur would call dysfunctional green postmodernism, which manifested as things like the IDW, got stuck because it didn't have a concept of what Wilbur would call second tier, which is where you realize all of these different values are actually necessary and that there is a place where they integrate. So you're not just stuck in a traditionalism versus postmodernism dynamic, which so many of the, or Jordan Peterson mm-hmm. in particular, but many of the other figures got stuck in. So that, that I think is hugely, still hugely, hugely valuable. Great. All right. Well, maybe we'll link that in the show notes as well. It's a good um, suggestion. So unfortunately, that means I now have to torture you, but in a way that I think as a sense maker, you will personally enjoy. This is the enlightening round. Enlightenment comes from within. Okay. So for folks who are not familiar, I'm going to give you a list of things. You're going to tell me, are these things real or not real? You do not get to define what you mean by real. You don't get to explain. You don't get to hedge. It's just real or not real. Those are the rules. Do you understand? Really do. Really, really, really. Okay, great. So first of all, let me just check. Uh, I have to ask because it's a philosophy show. Do you feel like anything in the universe, anything at all, any particular thing is real? Yes. Okay, great. So let's find out what's real. Uh, First up, the external world, real or not real? Real. Great. Colors, real or not real? Real. Phenomenal consciousness, real or not real? Real. Free will? Both. (laughs) Gotta pick one. Um, Real but complex. Uh, Okay, we'll stick with real there. Selves or persons? Can't say both, can I? Uh, Not real then. Okay. Genders? (laughs) There's a lot of shifting in the chair going on suddenly. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I want to question you about the whole fundamentals of this game, but... (laughs) Yeah, everyone everyone starts to right right about now, but that's the way this works. It's Um, too late. You're already on the ride. Difference between sex and gender, isn't there? So, realish. Okay, real, real then, real. Uh, races. Real. Okay, species. Real. Morality. Real. Rights. Real. Knowledge. Real. God or gods. Real. Society. Real. Money. I've got some in my pocket, so it's got to be real. (laughs) Numbers. Real. Fictional characters. Real. That's a good one for you, right? Holes, like a hole in the ground. Real. Chairs. Real. Sandwiches. Real. Science. Real. Natural laws. Don't know what that means. <laughs> That's okay. Um, like, you know, the speed of light or something like that. Real but complex. Mm. Beauty. Real. Almost there. Love. Real. Causality. Both. Real and not real. <laughs> okay. And finally, time. Both. Real and not real. 
<laughs> right, I'll let you off the hook because I know that you got a phone call to get to. I won't. Uh, well, you survived mostly. Um, how do you feel? Real. <laughs> you feel real. All right. You're very in the moment here. Yeah. Um, well, thank you for chatting. Thank you for letting us go a little long here. I know you got to run, so we will uh, skip the VIP, but we'll try to get you back on at some point. Do you want to let folks know one more time where they can find all your content? Sure. Yeah. Go to the website, rebelwisdom.co.uk and yeah check it out there's various it's where all the films the podcasts articles we've got our own sub stack as well which have got sort of longer more considered pieces and also we run courses in various different things our next one coming up soon is called embodiment and flow so it'll be a, a deep dive into the body nice sounds great i love some flow work yeah all right well thanks david this has been a lot of fun yeah Thanks, Aaron, and thank you, all your listeners. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. Thanks again to our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. Thanks to John Williams for increasing his pledge because of the episode with Mandisa Thomas. Uh, especially check out that episode if you haven't, and check out Black Non-Believers. Uh, I also wanted to shout out Ellie Bartlett for her help updating the Void Pod website. It really does take a Void community. And as always, I'd like to thank our top tier patrons, our Archon level patrons, Jay Aldenwalt, Serious Inquiries Only, Lawrence Shielding, This Is Your Brain Speaking, Ha Whoa, Dude, Fix the Vote, That Bastard Neil Polzin, Chad T, Jesse Urbinowitz and Brenda Goodman, and all the thanks to our Archduke level patrons, Big Easy Blasphemy, Creepy Little Void Eyes, and Dave Maslich. If you'd like to support the show, please check out my other show, Philosophers in Space. And while you're at it, check out our wonderful editor, Louisa Lyons' Filmed Live Musicals podcast. Leave them all a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. You can also follow me on Twitter at ETVPod or email me at voidpod at gmail.com. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early accessed episodes and bonus VIP content. Most of all, whether or not it makes sense, you are the void and the void is you. you.